Hey, Murphy here. Um, if you are a beginning hunter or you're listening to these stories and you're feeling like you might want to try this too, but you don't know where to start, uh, I want to let you know that I've created an e-course just for people like that, that is going to start with all the basics of hunting, explain it in short, easy to digest videos, and it covers not just the practical stuff about like, where do you find deer in the woods and what kind of firearm or bow do you use and things like that also covers spiritual preparation and giving thanks and ethical hunting and all that kind of philosophical stuff that we talk about in this podcast. And um, it's designed for anybody, but it really takes special notice of people who are not cis white dudes and the extra challenges and opportunities they might have learning to hunt. It's called Hunting with Heart. You can find it at mountainsideexpeditions.com. Hi there. Hello. I'm Murphy Robinson. And I'm Ari Earlbaum. I teach hunting and archery for a living. And I've never hunted in my life, but I'm curious. On this show, we're going to interview hunters of all genders to explore all sorts of perspectives on hunting, our relationship to our prey, and the wildness within ourselves. Welcome to the Hunters Podcast. And there was that crunching sound in the forest from where they come from. I'm like, oh my god, it's gonna be a buck. To me, it sounded like the whole forest sighed. Recording. Hello. Wanna say what you had for breakfast again? I had venison and eggs. Yay! <laughs> That's so good to hear. This eater of breakfast venison is main guy Jackie Stratton. She lives in a cabin in the woods with her dog, and she's a really skilled wilderness canoeer. We canoed the St. John River in Maine together in 2019 on a little birthday canoe trip for me and a friend, and it was super, super fun. She knows so much. Uh, she's one of the few women I know, also, um, that is a completely self-taught huntress who successfully harvested her first buck without a consistent mentor of any kind, which is really hard to do. Yeah, I think I'd be totally befuddled, like have no clue where to start. Um, and also I'd just be really scared of of doing it wrong and like what are the ethics of that, you know? how How the heck did Jackie do it? Yeah, I think it's worth noting that Jackie put a lot of care into this and was very, very ethical about the way she went about it. She read a million books about hunting. She really educated herself. She asked a lot of questions to a lot of different people. She also put in lots of dirt time learning her local woods and learning her gun inside and out, really honing her shooting skills. And not many people have that level of dedication and focus to really go through all of those steps correctly themselves. But Jackie pulled it off. Okay, so for all the kids listening at home, uh, if you're going to be a badass like Jackie, be dedicated and ethical like Jackie, too. Yes, definitely. You can certainly save some time and worry by finding a good teacher, taking a class, things like that. But it is, you know, Jackie proves it is possible to do it on your own if you have that uh, that pure, pure drive and that ability to not get discouraged, for sure. So it's it's an amazing story. Let's take a listen. 
what got you interested in hunting? When did, when did this become a, a goal or a dream for you? I was first introduced to hunting when I was in college. I went to school out in Colorado and then worked in Wyoming for the Game and Fish afterwards, and I was just inundated with hunters. And I was watching people um, come back from hunts, and I'd help process, um, help butcher elk and eat grouse, and was just really curious about it, but had absolutely no idea what to do. That was when I was about 22, and I'm 30 now, and and so I've been thinking about it since then, but over the last four years have really focused on um, becoming a hunter myself. So what was the process you went through when you decided to like really gain these skills? How did you go about that? I was really interested in bow hunting at first, and I did the bow hunting hunter safety course, and then I also did the rifle hunting, and I read books from the library. I found, I got every book on deer in the state of Maine, and every book on hunting, and every book on butchering, and I don't have internet, so YouTube was never an option for me. Um, and I also don't know many hunters. And so um, I I knew a few and I was able to ask a few of them questions, but I never really had mentors. Um, so that's really how it got started. And the first year when I hunted, I was out there with my book trying to understand what I would actually do if I got a deer because that was freaky. <laughs> Um, I was reading about how you got an animal and I was definitely not prepared to get an animal at that time. And I did take one shot my first year, um, doing archery and I totally missed because I was trying to be so hidden and I didn't do a full draw and the arrow just went way short of the deer and we had this look shared between us and well the deer helped me realize that I wasn't quite ready and it also helped me to see that while I was excited about doing archery I realized the amount of skill and practice you need to put into it was way more than I was prepared for at the time and so I had originally thought that it would be the most ethical and cool way to hunt and um, quickly was faced with the fact that a rifle would be the cleanest and most ethical way for me to hunt. Yeah, that's something that I talk to people a lot about. Everyone wants to bow hunt and you kind of got to explain what an advanced skill that is and how much effort it takes and how much more difficult it is. But it's amazing that you got close enough to a deer to, you know, plausibly take a shot that first year. That's really awesome. So one of the most common things that I hear from people who are interested in hunting, and especially women that are interested in hunting, um, is that the most intimidating uh, barrier to hunting is the gun skills and acquiring a gun. Um, so how did you come to feel comfortable uh, with a rifle, and, and how did you get the rifle that you use now? Right. I I had been around uh, firearms in college and in Wyoming a bit. I actually took a course um, through my college. It was an outdoor skills, one credit, you know, two 
two-day course where I first had my first interaction with um, shooting, and it was actually totally traumatic. And uh, the instructors, before we began, and the instructors were from NRA, um, they were pretending to shoot each other with the guns. What? With the unloaded oh, what? guns. Oh, my gosh. That's horrifying. It was awful. And I, the I, opposite of firearm safety. Right. I wrote to the school afterwards um, to share that, and nobody got back to me. Oh, gosh. I'm, a, I'm surprised you pursued it after that. Well, it was several years after that. Um, and I just took every opportunity I had to shoot with people. And I took the Appleseed course with our mutual friend Sarah a few years ago. And it's two days of shooting a twenty two for hours each day. And it really encouraged me to, to practice and... Um, that repetition and just understanding um, how your body works with shooting um, in the most stable positions was really helpful. And I've done some target shooting by myself, but finding a place that's appropriate to target shoot was really challenging. And I've done some shooting here on the land that I rent, but it's not the best location. Yeah, I think about that a lot too. You know, shooting ranges are set up for that and they have lead management systems and it's a much better place to be, but they're often not um, socially welcoming to the like single woman shooter. You get a, either get a lot of weird looks or you get a lot of unwanted help. Have you experienced that at all? Oh, definitely. The first time I purchased a hunting license, I was totally late to the game and I went to this place locally and got it on opening day and the woman who gave me the license as I walked away she kind of gave me a sideways glance and said well uh good luck I guess oh man coming from a woman too yeah um but I've I have um tried to go to hunting stores at times when there'd be less people there I uh, needed to sight in my rifle this year and I went to a local range and I went at 9am on a Tuesday because I knew nobody else would be there and uh, I I definitely had a lot of avoidance strategies and uh, at our local gun shop there is a, a woman who, who works there and I'm not sure if she manages a store or not and seeing people like that I would go to those places more often because I felt more comfortable there uh, the first few years I hunt, the first two years I hunted with a gun, I was actually hunting with a 20 gauge shotgun, which is not the best gun to use, but it was what I had. My grandfather, it was for my grandfather. He passed away. So my family gave me the shotgun. And then last year, my brother gave several guns to me on permanent loan. And so I've been shooting with a 308 and I feel so much more comfortable using that. And I know that I'll have a much better shot with that firearm. That's really wonderful that you were able to get guns through your family. That's such a barrier financially to a lot of people because like the cheapest hunting rifle that you can get that's any good is, is well, people would debate whether it's any good. I should, I hunt with them, but it's probably like, $360 if you go to like Walmart, you know, and get the really cheap ones, but it's a lot of money to put in. Um, and yeah, I mean, I have killed a deer with a 20 gauge shotgun in a state where that was what was allowed. You couldn't shoot rifles, but it is so much more 
Uh, it makes you so much more confident to have a, a rifle in your hand because it's so much more accurate. What kind of rifle do you shoot? I shoot with a 308 Winchester. Very common for deer hunting around here. It's a, it's a good caliber for deer hunting. Um, how, so how many years have you been buying a hunting license and going out and trying to get a deer at this point? Four years. Four years. Nice. Um, and is there something different that you did this year that you think contributed to your success or is it just a matter of time put in and luck? Something I did differently this year was I stuck to a location. I prefer to hunt from the ground and that was never successful for me. I was uh, given a deer stand, a tree stand a couple years ago that I used last year and never saw any deer. And this year I really picked up on signs of the rut and I abandoned the places that I was ground hunting from because the wind was never right. Um, and so I really stuck to one location and I saw that there were deer and we also had snow, which was very helpful. Uh, we had snow, I think, after the first week of the season. And so you can very clearly see where all the deer are going. That is so helpful. I really appreciate that. And my hunting season in Vermont this year, our our season starts two weeks later than yours. And so we had snow for opening day. It was very exciting. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, so I would love for you to just tell us the story of taking this buck this year. So before I tell the story about the buck, I really want to tell a different story, which is that a week prior to uh, taking the buck, I took a shot at a yearling and I wounded it. There were three yearlings that came and I've had many opportunities to take shots in previous years. And for whatever reason, I never took them. Um, part of it is maybe conditioning that I should be getting a larger deer with more meat. Um, and so it was a really big deal for me to make the conscious decision to attempt to take a life of a small animal. And it bounded away and the other two deer stood and looked at me and I wasn't sure I had hit that first deer. And I had the opportunity to take shots at the other deer, but I knew that it didn't feel ethically correct to do that because I wasn't sure I had hit the first deer. And so I waited as you're supposed to do when you think that you've wounded an animal so you don't push them further. And I got out of my stand and I couldn't figure out where the deer was standing. So I had to get back in my stand and look again and then pinpoint the area where I thought the deer was going to be. And I was only looking a difference of four feet when I went to look the second time and I had found hair and blood and I've never followed a blood trail before so I didn't know if it was a lot of blood or a little bit of blood. The blood trail started becoming a lot uh, less, more sparse, more sparse and I don't know if that meant that the deer was fine, the blood clotted. I did find one piece of clotted blood and I would imagine I might have shot it in the leg or something. But 
I felt like I did a really thorough job of looking for the deer and didn't find it. And I, my partner came to help me search and we spent the next seven hours doing a grid search of the woods and there was no snow on the ground at this point and we didn't find any sign. I looked until it got dark and I could not find this deer. I was very ashamed. I felt awful that I potentially I wounded and potentially killed this animal and couldn't retrieve it. I also know that it's going to feed a lot of coyotes. And um, in telling a few people about it, every hunter I spoke to has done that. Some hunters did it just the day before. And I was just blown away with how often people don't make a lethal shot or can't find the deer. I have done it too. I haven't done it since my very first hunt, but it's a experience that if you hunt for long enough, it will probably happen to you. And it's really hard to deal with if you actually care about these things, which the people I talk to do. Um, how did you, what did it feel like to come back from that day, spending all day searching for that deer, not finding it? And then like, what did it feel like the next time? What, what made you decide to go out again after that? Because that can be really difficult. I spoke to a few people about it and I told them what my thought process was and how I was feeling and how I was trying to decide if I should keep hunting or if that was my deer for the year. And everyone I spoke to said that I should continue. And one of the major reasons was that there are so many deer around here and ecologically, I think it's helpful to take a few more deer. I ultimately decided to keep hunting, but it cook, took a couple days to get back out there. Today's episode is brought to you by the Vermont Department of Fish and Wildlife. They're working hard to make sure hunting and fishing are accessible to everyone. This is my friend Nicole Meyer, who does education and outreach at Vermont Fish and Wildlife. I took my friend Shane out turkey hunting for his first time, and uh, I was actually also three months pregnant. <laughs> I was there like, well, I might uh, might have some morning sickness, but we're going to shoot a turkey today, either way. <laughs> Nicole is so cool. Anyway, speaking of going hunting for the first time, did you know that in 2020, Vermont had its first novice season for deer hunting? Novice season? Yeah, it's a special weekend when you can go out hunting with a mentor if you've never held a deer hunting license before. And it's before the regular rifle season, so the deer are more relaxed, they're easier to find, it's just way easier. You can get your novice season hunting tags at the Vermont Fish and Wildlife website. They'll be having the first novice turkey season this spring. Ooh, and then you can find a cool turkey hunting mentor like Nicole. So he's like, all right, well, why are we on the edge of this field? Like, well, because I see turkeys in this field, so it made sense to me. Okay, well, why are we in total camo? Like, oh, turkeys have really good eyesight, so we need to be completely invisible to them and not moving on. Oh, okay. And we heard a gobble that day, and he was like, what was that sound? That was a gobble. Like, that's what we are trying to hear. <laughs> you know, you don't have to be an expert, A+, plus, you know, one of these guys you see on TV that's that's shooting a deer every day. You know, you just have to know a little bit more than the person that you're taking out. The new novice hunting seasons are one of the many ways Vermont Fish and Wildlife are making the world of hunting, fishing, and conservation accessible to everyone. 
They've got free online hunter safety courses, online deer and turkey registration, and their very own podcast. It's all at www.vtfishandwildlife.com. Can you describe to me the difference that you experience between target shooting and the moment of actually shooting at a living deer in front of you? When there is a deer in front of you, your heart is in your ears. You are so zoned in on that deer that the rest of the forest is sometimes blurry. Sometimes it's spiraling. And the only thing that you see is the deer. It is so scary to shoot at an animal. When I target shoot, the only thing that is challenging for me is the sound. And I've shot enough to condition myself to not wince at that because you want to have a clear shot. But I don't know how (laughs) you could ever move through that with an animal. And it's, it's a really crazy feeling. Yeah, I think it's one of the reasons it's so important to put in a lot of practice without a deer in front of you because your body will have those memories in your muscles and will help you do some of the things right that you don't have a clear enough mind or senses in that moment to do. Um, and it, yeah, it totally changes how how you perceive everything around you. I One of really common experience that I've had and that most of my students have had is that you don't actually hear the rifle go off. And like when you're target shooting, the rifle is incredibly loud and you have to wear ear, ear protection and all of that. Um, nobody I know wears ear protection while they're hunting because you want to be able to hear the deer coming. So it's this sort of sacrifice you make of like, yes, this is going to damage my hearing, but I'm willing to make that choice. Um, but you, you just don't hear it when you're that just jazzed up about shooting a deer. That's very true. And I, I heard the ringing in my ears after that ended up sounding like clouds echoing in the forest. And it lasted for a very long time, but I did not hear the shot. So you took a couple of days and you talked to people and you um, dealt with these emotions of shame. Um, and then you went out again. And what happened then? I didn't see any deer. <laughs> I went back to the same spot and because of the snow on the ground during that period, I knew that they were passing through there. And I I probably hunted a total of about 30 hours this year. And then I started seeing deer and the deer were totally moving on the landscape and I heard crazy noises out of sight. And I later found out that there was an oak tree there and they were pawing and eating the acorns, but it sounded like the deer were jumping around each other. It was pretty exciting. Um, so I, yeah, I saw several deer and I had a doe tag so I could take does or bucks. The morning that I took a shot, it was, um, just legal hunting hours and the most handsome buck I've ever seen in these woods uh, came walking by. I've only ever seen one buck larger, and it was about six miles from here, but I rarely see bucks. It's always does. But this buck was coming through slowly, grazing, 
And I had just a few days prior, I had realized that there were a couple of hemlock branches in the way and I had borrowed my neighbor's pole saw to clear up the lanes a little bit. And without doing that, I don't think I would have been able to take a shot. But I, I often sit in my tree stand with my foot up because I want to be able to rest my gun up on my foot. And that's also how I often sit. Um, so I started just looking through my scope with no intention to shoot immediately because I understand deer move pretty slowly and you can have a couple minutes. And I could not see through my scope and my heart was pounding and I knew it was going to be close to the moment and I couldn't think. And then I quickly realized I need to get my face close to my scope um, so that I can see more clearly. And the buck had uh, just walked over the end of the woods road and was descending down a hill and it was my last absolute moment and something you can do is make a noise to make the deer stop but I didn't do that because it's hard to think about that sometimes uh, and I took a shot and there was a second deer behind it that I never saw and I didn't see where the buck went it moved and it's you hear people talk about how they made a well-placed shot. And I don't know, I can't understand how you actually know that because in the moment, you can't see where you shot the animal. You have a hard time just perceiving reality. Um, so I, I got the the buzzing forest and I couldn't hear anything and I could hear everything at the same time. And I did not hear the shot and... It was just um, reverberating noise in my ears after I took the shot. And so the buck walked slightly out of sight and that second deer traipsed off and I heard that deer going through the wetland and I wanted to wait because I had wounded an animal before and I don't think that I pursued it too quickly, but I really wanted to give it some time. And I waited about 15 minutes. And in that time, my ears came back to reality and my heartbeat decreased. And I was so certain I did not hit the deer because it seemed like it just walked away. And so when I finally got down from the stand, I walked over to the top of this little rise and I looked down and the buck was lying on the ground and I sobbed. Immediately I just cried and I was so surprised that I had gotten the buck. Um, and I was so surprised that I couldn't see it in the stand because it had taken a step and had fallen over. But it was just just out of sight. And so I, I sat there and I weeped and I didn't feel comfortable going to the buck. I, I sat about 15 feet away and just cried. And I know that when you hunt and you shoot an animal, it will die. And it was surprising. It was surprising that that happened. And I was also feeling very grateful and I'd, I've spent so much 
I spent hundreds of hours hunting and have never successfully um, shot, killed, and found an animal. And um, on that evening, my partner and his son had s- stayed over in the prior evening, and I really wanted them to participate in this. And their cell phone wasn't on, and so I had to run back to the house because they were about to leave. And I felt like I robbed myself of that moment in the deer with the deer in the woods that you'll never get back again. You're never going to be there when the deer is so warm and reality is is just on the ground. Um, and so I went back and I got them and they were very excited and um, we came out together and coming upon the deer in that way was like coming upon a scene that I had nothing to do with. And I'm really grateful that they were there for it and got to participate, but I was really upset that I lost that moment um, with the deer in the woods. Do you have like an instinctive sense of, you know, something you would have wanted to do for the deer in that moment or an offering or words or just a a presence and a being there? What, what do you think would have been the, the, what would have unfolded if you'd stayed in that moment? Do you think? If I had stayed, I would have shared more words of gratitude. I would have sang songs. I would have sat with my hands on the deer and, felt its temperature decrease. Yeah. I would have cried more. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Wow. That's beautiful. Did you, um, did you have a chance to share words of gratitude and and sing songs to the deer, uh, you know, in the short time after you found it or in time that you were processing it or anything like that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. And I've, I have spent enough time hunting and have offered so many words of gratitude um, during that time for the deer in the forest and all the beings. And uh, I would have done more of that if I hadn't have left. Mm-hmm. And I still can. That's a beautiful lesson to share that like there, there's really no rush in that moment. I mean, you had a certain rush because you wanted to catch your partner before he left, but um yeah, that that moment is a really precious time that we don't need to rush. That you know the the deed has been done. That it's unfolded, and you get to just rest in it in that moment. What do you like that moment to be like, or what has that been for you before? Oh, it's a moment of such incredible like emotion, intensity of emotion, and like a lot of different emotions at once. And there's always sorrow and there's always gratitude and there's always awe and um i usually cry not always um i i do always sing to the deer um and lay my hands on it and and speak to it like speak to its soul and um you know when you when you hunt because there is that waiting period between um you know, between taking the shot and then waiting in the where you are for a while for the deer to sort of die peacefully without running off for miles and miles. Um, so you come to it a little bit after the moment of death, but I do feel like the deer's spirit is kind of hanging around, 
you know, like there's still a closeness and a presence with the, the living aspect of that deer that you can speak to in that moment. So I like to do that as well. That sounds nice. Sounds pretty similar between our practices. Um, so how did you drag the deer out of the woods? That's something that people are often intimidated by the prospect of. Like, was it close? Did you have to drag it uphill? What was your strategy? The deer was about a third of a mile from my home. And my partner and his son came out and... Um, my partner does not hunt, and he has done some butchering, but it was very important to me that I was the one doing, and we didn't speak of it at all, and he knew that was important, too, and so he just witnessed it, and that was awesome. Um, I had a toboggan that uh, I tied the deer to, and there was a tiny bit of snow, like a quarter of an inch of snow on the ground, and so I could haul the deer myself and it was also it was really beautiful my partner's son cedar can't walk and so he was brought out into the woods with my red sled and on our way back cedar was in the sled and the deer was in the toboggan and i felt like we were in a parade it was really beautiful how what was cedar's reaction he's uh how old is cedar now cedar is eight and he was really interested in the whole process, and something he kept saying was, this deer is so big, wow. And he also was really keyed in on the deer being meat and also made lots of comments about how we were going to have a lot of meat for this next year and that we were going to be really secure. That's really beautiful. That's like such a... Um, kind of old-fashioned relationship to the hunt. You know, a lot of modern hunting culture is like, I shot a trophy and then I, like, threw the carcass in the backyard or whatever. But, um, you know, you you all are just relating to it in this very whole-cycle way of, like, this is our meat. This is what we will be eating for the next year. And I'm really glad Cedar got to experience that, too. Yeah, and so then we um, used a couple boards as a ramp to get into the bed of my truck. And we had to tag the deer. And so I think we came in and we ate some breakfast because we really needed to take a pause and rest our bodies. And we went down to the Burkittville store, which is a, a really culturally interesting location. And I walked in and there must have been a dozen hunters there just kind of hanging out, drinking their coffee, talking about how they need to shoot all the yotes because there's too many of them. and. I didn't really want much to do with it. And there was one person there who knew me. And so a few people came out and looked at the deer in the back of my truck. And they said, yep, yep. <laughs> and so um, it was 100, 140 pounds. And we did weigh the deer. And I was really pleased with it. And a lot of people said comments about how it was an okay-sized deer. And it was an awesome-sized deer. It's a beautiful deer. I, I got to see the, the head, and uh, it has a beautiful six-point rack. Really, seven. no, no seven-point rack, eh? Nice. Thanks for correcting me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's quite a buck. Yeah. So we, we ended up bringing the deer to my partner's house and uh, hung it for just a day, I guess, on 
the swing set next to the swings. And I got a great photo of cedar on the swing next to the deer. And I ended up skinning it later that day and quartering it and putting it in the refrigerator. And cedar participated in every step of the way. And he was managing the knives and asked so many questions. He's a very good question asker, that boy. He is, yeah. <laughs> he learned quite a bit. So um, did it feel different processing a deer that you had taken versus processing a roadkill? Oh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Often when you um, get a roadkill deer, a good portion of the meat is very bruised. And so I never felt the need to process every little bit. But um, with my deer, I did. And um, I've got the hide soaking in wood ash solution in the barn and made stock of all the bones. And it really took quite a bit of care and spent so many hours processing. I actually made 40 pounds of cased sausage, which um, I'm so excited to eat. That's amazing. Yeah, they, they say once you shoot the deer, that's when the work begins. Can you estimate how many hours of work you put into processing this deer? Um, I probably spent I probably spent 16 hours processing the deer. Maybe maybe about 14. And then I probably spent about 12 to 16 hours on the sausage. Um so how many days ago did you shoot this deer? 2 weeks ago. 2 weeks ago. All right. So you've had a little bit of time to um, absorb this experience. Can you talk about um, just whatever kind of emotional arcs you've experienced and things that have arisen for you in processing the experience over weeks? Yeah, I've gone out to the site where I took the life of the deer a few times and I can really connect with my emotions when I'm out there and I seem to continue to feel grief there and I don't feel grief in other locations. And uh, I feel really proud. I feel proud that um, despite not having a community of people who have taught me, I have um, done a lot of research and asked questions of a few people who I could trust. And um, I feel proud because a couple weeks ago, a friend texted me and she just got her first deer and she was reaching out to me for support and guidance. And I hope to continue to be a, a person of support for particularly women in hunting. Um, yeah, I feel really grateful to the deer and um, experience a deeper connection with this place. Um, and I've really focused a lot of energy on on becoming connected here and you are what you eat. And I feel really appreciative that that deer is going to make up my body now. Do you have any kinds of practices that put you in, um, in a place where you feel like you're receiving messages from the deer or you're able to communicate directly with that deer spirit? Or is it more just about being in that place and feeling your emotions? I don't necessarily feel that deer spirit anymore. I definitely feel the spirit of its brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and parents. And I feel as though it's an honor um, 
to take a deer, and I feel um, a, a practice I have is uh, just walking the land every day in a silent meditation and um, just connecting more so with my emotions. Like, yeah, as I said, I don't necessarily feel the energy of the deer anymore, um, but just continuing to offer gratitude to its family. What you've done is really, really amazing. I've, I've talked to very few people, if anyone, <laughs> you know, who, um, who are able to just go from, you know, not having a hunting tradition in their family or that well accessible to them or, um, you know, just, just doing what you did to like get some library books and read about it and take a rifle training and go out there and have that faith in themselves without a like really direct mentor. I mean, it sounds like you have some hunter friends that, that you can talk to once in a while, but um, it's a pretty amazing accomplishment to, to do that on your own. Um, do you think that, what, what do you think there's um, circumstances of your life that, that helped you pull that off? What, what made that possible? Good question. I'm pretty stubborn. <laughs> that helps. That's a very good quality in hunting. Yeah. Um, I also, having my my place in this community and my connections that I've made through the land trust, I'm, I'm in touch with a lot of people who know about the land and hunting and that sort of thing. And um, very few of them were people who I wanted to necessarily ask questions of. And I just... Yeah, ask questions of the right people, and it took four years. I was so impatient at first and was embarrassed, but um, I really felt like I was courting the deer and uh, building up my skills over time. And as I said, I really hope to be um, continue to be support for other people who are interested. And I've spoken to so many people um, of all genders who are interested in hunting and so many people who have been curious about your program as well. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really inspired to, to involve people in say the butchering that I do of roadkill deer and, um, just building that culture of, of respect and knowledge and skills. Yeah. Having, all different kinds of teachers for this skill is really important, I think, so that people can find the folks that they feel comfortable with. Because there does tend to be um, some cultural extremes in, in folks that are um, interested in hunting. Like, there's people who do it for all different kinds of reasons, from all different walks of life. And it's important to find a mentor that you're comfortable with. And I think that your, you know, your generosity in, st in sharing your story is going to help a lot of people figure out how, how they want to do it. Will you hunt next year? Oh, yeah. I'll hunt many years. Do you have uh, any sort of distilled pieces of advice for someone who's listening to this and wants to get into hunting and doesn't know where to start? I would encourage you to get some books <laughs> from the library. Um, I, would, I would encourage you to talk to everyone you know and ask who hunts and find people who you can ask questions of and you might get 10 recommendations and only one of them you feel comfortable reaching out to but that's really valuable i 
when I'm interested in something, I ask everyone I know what they know about it. And that's been really valuable. And just getting out into the woods and not feeling any pressure, something that was immensely helpful is just being with your gun. Because before that, I had been around guns and I had shot them, but I didn't feel totally comfortable. And I still don't feel totally comfortable, but just sitting with it and um, feeling its weight and, and practicing holding it is immensely helpful and finding local shooting ranges um, to get your shot down and continuing to work on that. It's important. Yeah, it's amazing how putting in enough practice to feel really, really confident with your gun will make you feel so much more confident in every aspect of your hunt. Because if you're out there trying to find the deer and you have this little like niggling worry in the back of your head of like, but if I find the deer, can I even shoot it? Like you're going to like either subconsciously or consciously, you're going to undermine yourself and hold yourself back. So it's a really important step. Right. And the one other thing that is immensely important is just knowing what the wind is doing and understanding how that affects the deer. And I have spent many, many dozens of hours um, hunting and the deer are downwind of me and as soon as they smell me they're gone and upwind of me there's no deer and there's no shots in that direction and I um yeah that's that seems to be the most important thing in choosing a location I agree and that's uh a really big mental shift uh as members of a species that don't really use our nose for anything very important most days um it's a really big shift of thinking of realizing that this is the deer's number one sense and, like, we have to think like a deer if we're going to have any chance of getting that close to one. Yeah. I Every day I start my hunt licking my finger and putting my finger up. And uh, the wind changes when the sun rises. And understanding how that how that change happens, you can predict it and say I, I leave my house at 5 in the morning. But I don't hunt until 6.30. The wind's different and uh, adjusting accordingly. Very, very good advice. Um, so Jackie, what is next for you? What is your next goal or, or step as an outdoors woman, um, besides continuing to hunt? I spent the last couple of months preparing, uh, to take my guide test in the state of Maine. If you want to guide people on outdoor trips overnight, you need to become a licensed guide. And so I will be taking the test in the next couple months and plan on leading some canoe trips in the state of Maine. I'm very excited about this stuff that you're taking because I have been on canoe trips with you in uh, on the St. John and in the, in the waters of Maine, and you have so many skills to share in that realm as well. So I wish you great luck with that. And maybe we'll do a canoe trip together someday. Yeah, we got to talk about joint venture for sure. Yeah, sounds good. Cool. Well, thank you so much for sharing your hunting story with us. Thank you, Murphy, for helping to teach people about hunting and for making some information available on the internet for us closet learners. I'm sure this podcast will add to the treasure trove. So thanks. <laughs> Many thanks to Jackie Stratton for doing this interview. Since we recorded this, Jackie has started her own canoe guiding business in Maine. I highly recommend going canoeing with her. It's so fun. She knows so much. You can learn more at www.waterwaysguiding.com or you can like Waterways Guiding on Facebook. 
The Huntress Podcast is a production of Mountain Song Expeditions, which is Murphy's Wilderness School in Vermont. You can learn more about all of their hunting classes at mountainsongexpeditions.com. Our theme music is composed by Keith Murphy and performed by Yazi Zeichner and Ari Erlbaum. If you liked today's episode, we'd love it if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to the podcast, and spread the word to your friends. It really helps us. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at huntresspodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you'd like to hear more of or what questions you have, and we might even feature your questions on future episodes. Until next time, may your arrows fly true. Thank you for this food, these friends, this glorious, glorious day. And the animals, and the vegetables, and the minerals that make it possible. Especially this buck. Yeah. Bon appetit. Hey, Murphy here. Um, if you are a beginning hunter, or you're listening to these stories, and you're feeling like you might want to try this too, but you don't know where to start, uh, I want to let you know that I've created an e-course just for people like that, that is going to start with all the basics of hunting, explain it in these short, easy to digest videos, and it covers not just the practical stuff about like, where do you find deer in the woods, and what kind of firearm or bow do you use, and things like that, also covers spiritual preparation, and giving thanks, and ethical hunting, and all that kind of philosophical stuff that we talk about in this podcast. And um, it's designed for anybody, but it really takes special notice of people who are not cis white dudes and the extra challenges and opportunities they might have learning to hunt. It's called Hunting with Heart. You can find it at mountainsidexpeditions.com.